Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. This is Marianne Russo. Thank you for joining us again. I hate to see this end. We are now presenting part three of the series, Depression and Children, um, with Dr. Deborah Serrani. And she has just been incredible. I encourage you to listen to the first two interviews. In the first interview, we discussed presentations, um, treatments, um, differences in um, child teen and adult depression, and um, really just gave all the information on the red flags and what parents need to know about childhood depression. In the second interview, we discussed the um, 10 myths surrounding child depression, and when I tell you this interview can be life-saving, I am not exaggerating. Um, Dr. Sarani really went into the 10 myths that people um, think about childhood depression that, um, you know, if, if they get this wrong, it really could have um, a crisis on their hands. So I encourage you to listen to that interview. And tonight, um, for the third and final part of this series, we are going to be discussing seven things a child with depression should know. Before we do that, Dr. Deborah Sarani um, weaves her own personal experiences from suffering from child depression um, as well as being a um, psychologist treating children with depression in her book, um, Depression and Your Child, A Guide for Parents and Caregivers. It is outstanding. And um, I am just so thrilled to have her here. So, Dr. Serrani, thank you for coming back. Oh, Marianne, I'm so happy to be here. I hate to see it end. Um, as I said, the first, the first two interviews were just fabulous, and I'm sure that this one really is um, right up there because as I was reading and preparing for this, there were so many things that you don't even think of um, for a parent and a caregiver. They're so overwhelmed, first of all, to have to deal with a child that's going through this um, you know, devastating illness. And you have a list of seven things a child with depression should know. And the first one is understanding the texture of their feelings, that often depressed children need help understanding textures of their emotions. So what do you mean by this? Well, you know, we've, we've become a society that no longer looks in each other's eyes. And the generation of children that are growing up don't really understand the textures of certain kinds of facial cues, certain kinds of social experiences. And if you add an additional mental illness on top of that, it creates a perfect storm for children having what's called alexithymia. 
It's an inability to really understand what your feelings are, what the textures and contours of those feelings feel like. And as a result, if you don't know what you're feeling, you don't know what you're thinking. And if you don't know what you're thinking, you cannot kind of find a positive way out. So one of the most important things that I I put at the top of my list when I work with children is to teach them what the textures of their feelings are. Remember that chart? Uh, It's a famous poster, and it has all these wonderful round faces on it uh, with different facial expressions. It might say sad, lonely, frustrated, irritable. Well, the reason why that's such a popular poster is because kids can't understand their own feelings. So if they look at this poster and they look at the facial expression and we show them that in a mirror or they get to see it in someone else, they become more targeted, more specific in understanding the feeling. So when kids will tell me things like, I'm feeling not so great today, or I'm feeling sad today, I want to know more. What does sad mean? And some, for some kids, sad means that they're really feeling lonely or that they're really feeling afraid or that they're really feeling something in addition to the sadness. So a depressed child needs to become a master at knowing what they think and feel. Yeah, and, you know, as adults, it's diff- difficult to get in touch with, you know, true emotions. Um, you know, so for a child, you know, it can really be difficult. And, you know, children, I guess and adults too, oftentimes, um, you know, present a depression as irritability or anger um, right. or anxiety. So it's so hard for them. Well, talk therapy is well known for for taking alexithymia, this phrase that, you know, you're going to see a lot, a lot about in the news and, and in print, um, and, and really teaching the, the lifestyle of understanding your own thoughts and feelings. And that's why talk therapy is so helpful, because once you know what you're thinking and feeling, you can fix it, you can address it. But, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of kids will sometimes say, I don't know, I don't know how I'm feeling, or... What is it that, you know, what makes you sad? I don't know. You get a lot of that with young kids. And And I think that's frustrating for parents because they think they know. They think the kids are withholding, and the kids really don't know. That's right, and that's why it's so helpful for children to be aware that they may not understand their feelings. So then parents can, you know, kind of be a little softer on themselves because, you know, we as parents want to make sure that we're doing a good job. But sometimes, just as you said, Marianne, the kids don't know. So, you know, how are the parents going to know? Right, and, you know, that that brings us to... um Number two, which is how to spot negative thinking, um, you know, is teaching children to analyze their thinking into, you know, is this a good thought and how to change it into a more positive uh, place. So how right. would parents approach that? Well, pediatric depression has three areas. It's change in mood, change in physical symptoms, and this is the area that we're talking about, which is change in self-attitude. Most children have a very negative self-attitude. And it's not that they're negative on purpose. It's part of the illness. The frontal lobe of the brain don't get um, activated enough in a depressed state. So it doesn't allow you to do problem-solving and positive thinking. So when we teach children to stop, think, and reflect, is what they're saying to themselves a thumbs-up kind of statement like, 
you know, well, I studied really hard, and even though I failed the test, I can feel good about myself. Or are they saying, I'm stupid, it doesn't matter how hard I try, I can never get anything right. That's like a thumbs-down statement. So I try to help kids listen to how they're talking to themselves because how you talk to yourself truly, research shows, changes your neurochemistry. So if you think positively, you will feel better. If you think negatively, you will feel worse. So it is a tough task, but it's not impossible. It requires parents to have a really good ear. You know, like when you listen to music, you find a song that you like. I tell mm-hmm. parents, find a sentence that you like. And when your child says, oh, you know, I, I really did, I really had a good time with that. You did? Tell me more about that. Uh, or if you hear your child saying something negative, you don't, you don't kind of, discipline in a way where you say, you know, that's unacceptable, you may say as a parent, oh, what about thinking of it in this way and putting a positive right. spin on it? Right. So it's, well, now, how, how would, say, rumination um, play into this? You know, say you have a child who is constantly focused on their own distress, um, you know, and they can't seem to get past that and stop the worry which causes a depression. Um, you know, are there any ways, um, you know, what ways would you use to help them stop this? Well, there's, there's three main steps. The first is to heighten the obsessive circle. And what I mean by that is, and this is a great example you're bringing up, Marianne, when we get stuck in a negative loop, we have to become aware of the loop. So insight is the first thing we have to teach. We have to heighten the experience. So if you're a parent, you can say, oh, could you just hear what you just said? You know, you do it in a playful way, in a way that doesn't make it sound shaming because we want to increase a child's awareness. That's the first thing. The second thing is once we have the awareness that we're doing it, now we have to introduce the interruptive thought you know, where the brakes can be put on. And that's with, you know, oh, I'm so stupid, I can never do anything right, or why do I mm-hmm. even try? We, we have to teach the child to kind of fight each sentence. You know, why do I even try, or why am I so stupid? Well, you're really not stupid with everything. And why do you try? Because you hope that at some point you do get it right. So we counter each negative thought with a positive one. And then what we then do, the third aspect here, is to practice it. And then hopefully what was a negative reflex or a negative obsessive circle of thinking can somehow get derailed or, or broken so the positive ones can slip in. And mm-hmm. it will take oh, yeah. some elbow grease on right. the child's part. But if we can do this with our child, it becomes now a coping mechanism. We teach children how to think positively, and boy, does that make a big difference. Absolutely, and it leads into, um, you know, the next uh, point. And, you know, I really was thinking about this when I was reading it because, you know, I often say that parents are so focused on making their kids happy that they forget to teach them calm and self-regulation. And, Mm. you know, teaching children to be self-advocates is huge because they're going to need to advocate for themselves, you know, the rest of their lives. But I think we often miss the point that you make here, um, in number three, which is to teach them positive self-care. Um, and it's, it's, when I was reading it, it was like, you know, I don't think that parents really realize that this is something that they need to learn early. 
You know, I do think that um, our, we've become a generation of very quick fixes, and the quick fixes are from things. You know, you know, if, if you hit a reset button, the quick fix of your game not going well, <laughs> you just click away from a button. You know, we have uh, the immediacy of many things in our life that technology gives us. But what we've lost, and it's such a cost to it, is just the very simple things in life that are involved with self-care. Self-care has become the new trend in this last year teaching people almost like Martha Stewart used to teach us how to just, you know, cook very basic recipes. Self-care has come into the forefront again as it should because we've lost these very natural, easy ways to learn how to be good to ourselves. And I teach children a very easy way, which is to just always think of their five senses, sight, touch, hearing, taste, and smell. If you can do things to feed any one of those senses, it becomes a self-caring experience. So for some kids, it may be, you know, cozying up with a nice warm stuffed animal to make them feel good um, or choosing healthy, flavorful foods, maybe walking in the sunshine, looking at nature, listening to music, playing, you know, with friends. It changes dopamine and serotonin when we self-care, when we take care of ourselves. And dopamine and serotonin are feel-good hormones. So when we teach children how to self-soothe, we're teaching, we're actually giving them a gift that's going to last a lifetime. Not to rely on things, but more on experience. Experiences, And by doing that, you know, we help children, again, get in touch with their thoughts and feelings. So it's a win-win all around. Absolutely. You know, and as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, because I've done hundreds of shows, and I've yet really to find um, any neurobiological disorder that um, did not have sensory issues attached mm. to it. And I was just curious, does, do you find um, children with depression tend to have more sensory issues? Or they do. Or is it unrelated? No, no, Marianne, you bring up an excellent point. In fact, many children who are depressed, I call them skin hungry. And what I mean by that is sometimes it's, depression is such an isolating experience. Even you may be around, you know, your family who loves you. There's something about depression that's very deprivating. So when kids become aware of what depression is and how it affects them, you tend to find more of a sensorial leaning towards textures and hugs and touch, uh, scents and sounds. Um, you know, so it, it really is um, an experience of depletion. And research shows us, and I love these studies, because it shows us just how depleted depression takes from our brain, from our central nervous system, from muscle tone to sense of smell. They become depleted almost non non functional in some ways so right. you bring up an excellent point and you know the next statement feeds right into it is exercise how important it is um, for these children which is why parents if, if your child is having behavioral issues or is depressed just make sure that they are never punished by having recess taken away mm. um, because that is off the table these children need exercise but tell us why 
Well, like I said just before, um, depression is a state of depletion. And what happens with many depressed individuals, I remember this so vividly when I was a child. I had terrible fatigue. I was tired all the time. My friends would be playing outside and I'd be in my room on my soft orange blanket with the windows up and the sun shining in on my bed, like almost sleeping. That's how tired I was. And what ends up happening is that um, you know, the depletion from the fatigue and the physical symptoms of depression, it causes children to almost cocoon themselves. And what we have found, and I love this because I, 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 I read it somewhere, I can't remember where, they said that exercise is the most underused antidepressant in our, in our um, current century. And it's true. Right. You know, we, it's very you true. Know, Kids tend to be more sedentary now. We sit much more. We're inside much more than usual. So the fatigue that comes with depression and the irritability and the physical complaints of like the aches and pains, they go away when kids exercise, when they move their bodies. If they're playing catch with the dog, if they're playing tag with their friends, if they're playing more organized sports, we know through data and research that exercise improves depressive symptoms. It's a no-brainer. If you're depressed, it can be hard to get yourself out there and move. Believe me, I know that. But once we get kids out there and they start to move, it's almost as if they're, you know, like a, you know, a, a dynamo. It really refuels them and helps reduce depression. It's, it's an amazing thing to see how exercise can be successful. Right, and it could be tailored for you know any child, even yoga. Um, the yep. next, the next one you have is when too much of something isn't good, and you say it's vital for kids to learn how too much of anything can upset the apple cart. <laughs> yeah, I like to, you know, I when I work with kids, and you know, it's funny, you know, we're, sometimes we chuckle here and there when we're talking about this very serious topic of depression, but I do have a light kind of thin when I work with kids with depression. So I like to teach them as much about their illness by saying, you know, too much of a thing can be bad. Too much sleeping, no good. <laughs> too much, too much mm-hmm. eating, no good. You know, too much irritability, no good. What I'm trying to do is to teach them to be aware so they can self-regulate. I know you used that phrase just a little bit earlier. We want, we want to teach them how to monitor their experiences, to understand the healthy limits. For instance, you know, I was a kid and I'm, and I'm an adult who still needs this. I need a nap every day because my fatigue is so much, but I have to be mindful of it. I can't take a nap for more than a half an hour. Otherwise, then it interrupts my sleep, and then my sleep interrupts my depressive symptoms, and boom, we're in a terrible right. cycle again. So, you know, teaching children to learn their illness, not just depression, but any chronic illness, of what balance means. And, you know, kids love this because they really want to feel better. So when we tell them, you know, too much of something is no good, they like laugh because we always hear that phrase. But then we put it into action and tailor it to what their each unique experience is. So for kids who are sleeping too much, nope, that's no good. If you're eating too much, nope, not good. You know, so it's all about balance. Right, and I, I like that you write in the article that it raises the stress hormone cortisol. And I've been saying for four years that parents need to 
go on the Internet and find out the function of the limbic system and the amygdala yeah. because it's going to explain so much to you and you're going to understand what's happening to your children. So do that, parents. Just go and Google the amygdala, cortisol, the limbic system, and you'll see that this is really a physical response. This isn't, you right. know, all in, in their heads. Right. It becomes a real medical illness. The more parents can empower mm-hmm. themselves and learn. Mm. Right. And the, the next one I love is teaching kids to identify the difference between a bad day and a sad mood. That's <laughs> got to be tough. Actually, you know, it, 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 it is, but it's also, like I said, a gift once kids can master this. And I also remember this as a little kid and a teenager. Boy, you know, when I was at my worst and I was suicidal and in a really dangerous place, I really came to understand this this sentence very well. Bad days happen, but they don't mean that they're going to be continuously what you live with. So, you know, I try to help children not only understand their feelings, but to couch it in a 24-hour cycle. You know, a bad day today is not necessarily going to mean you're going to have a bad day tomorrow. It's about making the reality of what life really is understandable to them so you know it doesn't ha- a sad moment doesn't have to ruin your whole day um you know a, a bad feeling That's such great advice it does it doesn't have to it's a moment and and maybe there'll be another two or three moments that are bad but it doesn't have to be a continuous cycle and it is hard but you know tomorrow is a new day is is you know one day at a time uh, these are very important things for kids to understand. And it will take a little bit, you know, of work. But, you know, again, it becomes something that makes sense. I always find when I work with kids, if it's simple and reasonable, they get it. Right. You know, it makes sense right. to them. And so, it, it gives you know, hope. It gives yes. hope. You know, it's funny because I don't know why, but I've for a long time just always had a mantra in my head that every morning I just, you know, put it through my head. You know, throw it away, and I'm done with it. <laughs> but <clears throat> the past couple of years, um, with you know my my other child being so um, sick mm-hmm. um, with the fibromyalgia, that I, every morning I just wake up and I say, whatever life throws at me, this too shall pass. Mm. And, you know, it's like I put it in my head and then I put it out of my head, but I know that no matter, you know, what happens, this is going to pass. And I actually had written an article, um, you know, two steps forward, one step back still gets you ahead, the special needs <laughs> parenting, because I think uh. parents panic um, when you see a child falling back or if you see an exacer- exacerbation of symptoms. You know, the tendency is to, to panic, you know, okay, do we need a new medication? Do I need to add a medication? And sometimes you just need to take a breath. <laughs> You're right. You're right. You're right. And I and I love um, the the whole feeling of or the the um, embodiment that it will pass. You will get through right. it. I tell people all the time, you know, mm-hmm. your success rate has been a hundred percent whether you realize it or not because you're here. <laughs> exactly. And you know, my my um, youngest daughter has a very severe case of juvenile fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, and she's been she's done better the past year and a half. But you know, years back, she was you know in the intensive care unit. I mean, she oh was my. in horrific pain every day of her life, and she's oh. my hero because um, you know it, there were nights that she was just up in so much pain all night long, and she would say, "Well, tomorrow might be better." 
Oh, and I, I remember it. just saying, what courage. But that's how they have to think. Tomorrow might be better. And, you know, if you think it might be, it will be. You know? Right. And you also add to that by saying, you know, whatever life throws my way, this too shall pass. And, you know, you, you embody that positivity as well. And that's another important piece, you know, that, that if you're a family, to be a team where you can kind of move through the adversity and realize that you can get through it. Right. And that, you know, and, and you know, having setbacks are just those. They're setbacks. You know, you're mm. going to go forward again. But the last one on the list um, is probably the most important. And it's, you know, how to teach children to let others know they need help. And we touched upon this. Um, we didn't touch upon it. We went into in depth in um, the last interview. But this is different. This is really how do you get the children to that place that they're comfortable enough to ask for help. It's, it's such a hard thing for adults to ask for help. And this can be a monumental climb uh, for children to get to the top of this particular mountain. But I always think a lifeline teaching children how to express concern, even if they can't put the words together, I need help, Mom, or I'm struggling, Dad, you know, to just find a way, whether it's through writing, through touch. Sometimes, you know, I, I've had this with my daughter, just sometimes how she'll lean on me or touch her hand on my shoulder. I know she's struggling with something. And it, it's important for us to teach children ways verbally and non-verbally, just to let it be known that they're struggling. You know, and some children don't have any trouble with this. They kind of tell their parents everything. But depressed kids tend to have a hard time. Um, you know, they, they struggle with, their, with, with expression of it. And, um, you know, I, I just tell kids all the time, trust as much as you can. Be willing to be fearless when it comes to letting somebody know you're struggling because they love you even though you may not feel it or you may not feel deserving of it. It is a hard thing, but that's what talk therapy does. It, it teaches children, it gives them bridges and tools to how to communicate, and, um, which is why it's so essential for talk therapy to be a piece of the pediatric treatment. Um, but it's something that, you know, does take time. I would say of all of the things on, uh, that we spoke about today, I think number seven is the hardest for kids. You know, they... Absolutely. they, they they really do struggle with, you know, trying to share and let their parents know because they feel like sometimes they're letting them down or maybe they feel ashamed or maybe they feel confused or afraid. This is a tough one. And, you know, they, they're feeling these emotions so deeply that I think they assume that parents or teachers can see it. And, you know, maybe that's something that's important for the kids to know that, you know, you may be feeling it so deeply, but not, we, that doesn't mean that you can always see it. You know, right. Right. which is, you know, so hard for these kids. So, you know, in this last interview, and I want to thank you, this series has been incredible. And listeners, as I said, you can listen to all three interviews. Go to um, our website, www.thecoffeeclatch.com, and you will find the blog on depression in your child and all three interviews are there for you to listen to. But um, for, for this interview, um, you know, we were talking about what kids need to know. And as I said, you have such a unique perspective, having lived it and then being able to use a career to help others. So 
now that we know what kids need to know, what do you want to say to parents? What do they need to know about their child with depression? Well, the one thing that I would want to stress is that as a parent, if you can help your child learn to live and live successfully in spite of their depression, that that would be my goal. I mean, I know that when I think about my mom and when she sees me, she'll say things like, I know you had a bad day or I know it was a tough, a tough month, but to be able to see you working and thriving, it, it just means so much to me. So I want parents to know that an illness like depression does not have to be um, a serious kind of um, worry if you can help your child learn early how to treat it and how to live successfully with it. And, um, you know, parents should, should try. I always, I always try not to say should, the shoulda, woulda, couldas, but parents should try not to feel shame or blame their genes or what didn't I do right. This is a medical illness, and sometimes the genetics are such that this is how it plays out. But be your child's best advocate, biggest fan, and learn, as Marianne said, as much as you can. Absolutely. Well, Deborah, I cannot thank you enough. This has been incredible, and I just want to make sure that everybody knows where they can find you. Um, what is your website? Where can they get your book? They can find me at drdebraserrani.com, and my book should be Depression in Your Child should be in bookstores and online at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And um, I want to thank you for allowing me to bring this topic to light and sharing your time um, on what, what I consider to be you know, such a vital, a vital disorder nowadays that can be readily reduced with, with knowledge. So I thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. And listen, if anything comes up, any research that you think uh, parents and my listeners need to know, you just let me know and uh, we'll add to the series. You betcha. Okay. I have a really – anyone who's been watching the show and listened to the show um, knows about our series that just went off the charts, the Maverick Mind series with Dr. Sharice Lawrence, and I had um, my host, um, Angie um, – Oh, my God, just skipped my mind. Angie Eaton hosted the series. And it's about highly visual thinkers. They call them children with maverick minds and how they're often misdiagnosed with bipolar, ADHD, learning disabilities. Mm. And they're really highly visual thinkers. And if you think about it, you know, 60, um, 70 to 90% of a child's school day is auditory. So mm. these children who are highly visual thinkers are lost. Now, we finished that series. It's on the website. It's unbelievable. But now we have another series because her daughter actually isn't a maverick mind. Her daughter has synesthesia. And ah. synesthesia is when you can taste music, mm. numbers appear as colors, your senses are all blended. You I, have, yeah. Yes, and you have these, um, like, actually helpers in your head to organize life. And People are misdiagnosed with mental illness, severe learning disabilities, nonverbal, and they really have synesthesia. They don't even know they have it. That's right. Because they think everybody thinks that way. Well, we have a three-part series coming up calling Synesthesia and Your Child. We have the most renowned international experts coming on to talk about synesthesia, and mm. this, this series is just unbelievable. And um, that is going to start next week. So... 
Thank you for joining us. I'm very proud to present this series and uh, the next upcoming series. And um, thank you for joining us as I end each show. You are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent with us at the Coffee Clatch. We now have seven shows on the network. Check them out at www.thecoffeeclatch.com. Have a great night, everyone, and thank you again, Dr. Serrani. Thank you.